Welcome back to the Insurance versus History podcast. I'm Meredith Brasher, your writer and host, and I'm excited to dive into more episodes where I examine how insurance has changed history, and sometimes how it failed to change history, even when it really, really tried. I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and for almost 20 years, I worked in the insurance industry, underwriting liability exposures for everything from paranormal investigators to the world's top 500 companies. Do you want to know how history happened? Insurance can help. Three years ago, when I started thinking about creating a podcast to discuss insurance and history, I had only one topic in mind. Slavery. The insurance industry was involved in this terrible institution from the 14th century until slavery was abolished in Europe and the Americas. The problem was, I didn't feel very well versed in the history of slavery, much less the history of insurance and slavery. I went to good American public schools and I loved history, and I have both a bachelor's and master's degree in history, and yet, well, it's pretty easy to avoid studying the topic of slavery even as a history major at an American university. An unofficial survey of people around me suggests I'm not alone in my limited knowledge. I suspect most Americans only know very basic facts about slavery. And if you've been following American politics, you'll know that some people in America think people should learn even less than we already do. For my part, I knew I needed to know a lot more about the history of slavery and how it worked and how the insurance industry participated in it before I tried to talk about it on the podcast. That process has taken me over three years, and I'm still learning. There is so much historical research on slavery, and one of the areas that has started getting focused attention in the last 20 years was the intersection of slavery and insurance. It's an embarrassment of riches for someone interested in the topic. And because there was so much to talk about regarding insurance and slavery, I had to break this discussion down into parts, a series, if you will. Don't worry, I promise to break these episodes up with other non-slavery-related episodes so it doesn't become too overwhelming. This episode is the first part of the series, and it's focused on the Atlantic slave trade itself, the forced migration of millions of people from the continent of Africa to places in North America, South America, and the Caribbean islands. Of course, I must remind everyone that this discussion will likely be difficult to hear. I understand it was hard to read about, too, but I hope you'll stick with me and understand how important it is to talk about slavery and insurance's role in slavery and the slave trade. This is a story about how capitalism developed in Europe and the Americas, about colonialism, the cost of labor, transcontinental marine shipping of kidnapped human beings, and how insurance supported all of these things and how underwriters decide what to insure and how to insure it. I could probably spend, oh, several hours walking you through how the Atlantic slave trade developed, but I'll just try to sum it up as quickly as I can instead. Sadly, it's still going to take a while. While slavery in some form has been around apparently almost as long as people formed civilizations, the Atlantic slave trade, which refers to the period between the 15th century and the 19th century, was unusual compared with earlier versions of slavery. For example, 
slavery was common during the Roman Empire and could even be hereditary, meaning your children would also be enslaved, but these slaves had certain legal rights and there was often a clear path for manumission, or freedom from slavery. But the slavery of the Atlantic slave trade was different than the slavery that had come before. First of all, the forced enslavement of people from Africa during the 16th and 19th centuries is often called chattel slavery, meaning that the people who were enslaved were considered the personal property of the people who had purchased them. The enslaved people could be sold or traded away like any other type of property, and they could be passed on as property after their owner's demise. It also meant that the children of enslaved women were also considered property, even if, say, the father was free. This idea of people as strictly property with no rights of any kind was one of the main things that distinguishes slavery in this period from slavery before this period. In addition, the Atlantic slave trade differed from earlier forms of slavery because the people who were enslaved during the Atlantic slave trade were almost exclusively from the west and central areas of Africa. That's quite different from earlier forms of slavery, which involved all kinds of people from all over the world. The Atlantic slave trade, and who was involved, developed concurrently with the colonial expansion of European countries into the rest of the world. The Atlantic slave trade focused on colonialism in North America, the eastern side of South America, and the Caribbean. As you may recall, the 15th and 16th centuries were an age of exploration for European countries as maritime technology in those countries had advanced enough that their voyages could travel across oceans and around the world. While the Italian Columbus gets credit for first discovering the Americas on a voyage funded by the Spanish monarchy, the Portuguese would go on to dominate the colonization of the Americas for most of the 15th and 16th centuries, primarily because they were able to claim the area we now know as Brazil after the Treaty of Tordesillas was signed in 1494. While the Pope and then the Treaty of Tordesillas tried to apportion the Americas strictly between Portugal and Spain, by the 1620s, the English, Dutch, and French started claiming parts of the Americas themselves. Portugal and Spain were united briefly as the Iberian Union between 1580 and 1640, which also corresponded with the decline of both countries as naval powers and opened up these opportunities to other countries. By the end of the 17th century, England would control most of the Caribbean islands, but most importantly, Barbados and Jamaica, Portugal controlled much of Brazil. The Spanish, who had given Jamaica up to the English in 1655, controlled islands like Cuba and Puerto Rico and parts of South America, including the area now known as Colombia. The French had several islands, including St. Dominique, which would eventually become Haiti, and the Dutch controlled Aruba and a few other islands, the coast of Venezuela, and a chunk of Brazil they had taken from the Portuguese. Even the Danish had a foothold colonizing what is now St. Thomas. Originally, these explorers and colonizers were looking for gold, and they did find some, but it became pretty clear fairly quickly that the Caribbean and South America were not so great for gold, but fantastic for growing sugarcane. Sugarcane would eventually be grown in the American colonies, but not for a while and only in a few places. Sugarcane was highly in demand in Europe, and anyone who could successfully grow sugarcane in the Americas was potentially going to become very wealthy. That was a pretty enticing opportunity, but it came with challenges. 
Sugarcane farming was extremely time-intensive and required a lot of land to cultivate profitably. In addition, sugarcane stays in the ground all year, and taking care of it and harvesting it takes a lot of work, year-round work. So they needed a large, reliable worker pool to do it profitably. As a result, there were really no small sugarcane operations, and the places that grew sugarcane only grew sugarcane and nothing else. As you probably have figured, this was the beginning of the plantation system, the system of large-scale forced labor operations that, in a lot of ways, are considered the, quote, birthplace of capitalism in the Americas, unquote. I did not make that quote up. That is a real quote. However, the colonizers discovered that they had a big problem in getting these plantation systems up and running. They had a worker shortage problem. At first, European colonizers tried to enslave indigenous peoples in the Americas and have them do the work, but European diseases like smallpox had decimated native populations. In some cases, the indigenous people were almost entirely gone from some islands within the first 30 years of European contact. In parts of the Caribbean, there simply weren't enough indigenous people to enslave to make the plantations work. And in places like Brazil, trying to enslave the native people did not work very well for them, diseases notwithstanding. They fought back. It got to the point that the Portuguese even tried offering wages as an incentive to get indigenous people to work in their gold mines. But not surprisingly, the native peoples weren't particularly interested in participating in these new capitalist enterprises. People living in Europe weren't clamoring to come to these new places and work the fields either. Some people did come as indentured servants, but that servitude had expiration dates. Some English prisoners were sent to the American colonies as workers, but not surprisingly, the colonies weren't exactly opening their arms wide to receive criminals from England. And while there was some voluntary immigration from Europe to these places, the number of people from all these categories combined wasn't anywhere near the number of people they needed to work the plantations successfully. So you've got an essential capitalist problem. You need a lot of labor to make these sugarcane operations work. How do you induce people to come and work for you? Well, you could pay a higher than average wage, but even that probably wouldn't entice a lot of people to move to a place where the work was so hard and the living situation still so difficult, plus all the fun new diseases, that immigrating would probably kill you in less than 10 years. If the plantation owners wanted to make the maximum amount they could from their farming enterprises, they had to reduce the cost of labor, not increase it. And how could they do that? Slavery. Slavery was the cheapest way to get labor and the cheapest way to get a lot of labor, which they needed. Originally, the Atlantic slave trade started as a trickle. While most countries in Europe had done away with slavery before the Middle Ages, though many of them replaced it with serfdom, Places like Portugal still had slavery. Most of those people who were enslaved in Portugal came from places like North Africa, or even from places that Portugal had explored in Asia. For example, the Portuguese explorer Magellan, who was the first person to circumnavigate the earth, had a slave named Enrique, who he brought with him on his venture. Enrique had been purchased in Portugal, and Magellan seemed to know almost nothing about this person he owned. But when they reached Southeast Asia on their expedition, it turned out that Enrique could speak Malay. He was the only person on board who spoke Malay, 
and the only person on board who could communicate with the indigenous people they encountered in Southeast Asia. Note that Southeast Asia was not great for Magellan. I mean, he was murdered there. But this stop on their voyage may have turned out okay for Enrique. After Magellan died, Enrique was supposed to be freed from slavery, but they were still sailing around the world. The captain who replaced Magellan decided not to free Enrique because he spoke Malay. Apparently, it never occurred to him to free Enrique and then pay him to stay and act as an interpreter. Enrique, who wanted to be free, not surprisingly, eventually escaped from the ship and disappeared. I hope he found his home island, but no one really knows. And Enrique is technically the first person to have circled the globe because he was enslaved in Southeast Asia, transported to Portugal, and then transported back to Southeast Asia after voyaging around the Americas before what remained of Magellan's ships made it back to Portugal. Enrique's enslavement wasn't an anomaly. The Portuguese had a long tradition of just kidnapping people they came across on their travels, like probably someone kidnapped Enrique. And as they explored the west coast of Africa, they would occasionally kidnap people there too. It was often, but not always, a crime of opportunity and involved small numbers of people. The west side of Africa was about as far south as most Portuguese wanted to sail. For a while, they believed that south of West Africa, you would encounter terrible monsters if you didn't just, you know, fall off the side of the earth. If you look at a map, the West Africa I'm referring to here is the part of the west side of Africa south of the Sahara, down to about what is now Angola. Part of this stretch of Africa is also bordered by the Gulf of Guinea. And during the Atlantic slave trade, the west coast of Africa was referred to as the Guinea coast. In those instances where the Portuguese had kidnapped people from the west coast of Africa, those people would be taken to slave markets in Lisbon and Seoul. All the enslaved people the Portuguese took for centuries had to come through Lisbon, and there were taxes and licenses involved, the proceeds of which went directly to the monarchy. Some of those enslaved people sold at those early Lisbon slave markets went to places in Portugal, some to other countries, and some back to a handful of islands off the West African coast where sugarcane plantations were being established. But then some Portuguese traders met some African traders who sold people as their primary business enterprise. These African traders were often Muslim, from all parts of Africa, even West Africa, and sold non-Muslim Africans into slavery. To the Portuguese, buying people outright was a lot easier than individually kidnapping people, and there was demand for enslaved people that was not being met, so... You can see what happened. In 1445, the Portuguese started buying enslaved people from Muslim merchants in West Africa, rather than stealing them. Soon after, the Portuguese established trading posts on the West African coast and expanded their trade in humans. The trade was consolidated under a royal monopoly called the Ascentio. I should probably apologize here for all the bad pronunciation of Spanish and Portuguese words you're about to get. Sorry about that. This trade was consolidated under a royal monopoly and supported by the Pope. The Spanish followed and eventually had their own royal monopoly, but in the beginning, the Spanish were mostly buying people from Portugal. Remember that Spain and Portugal became one country from 1580 to 1640, so while Spain eventually became a major trader of enslaved people, the slave trading of Portugal and Spain was pretty intertwined for a while. After the Iberian Union ended, 
The slave trading monopolies that Spain and Portugal had separately established eventually went into decline. As a result, the slave trade was also opened up to other interested parties, including countries like England, France, and the Netherlands, who were also starting to colonize places in the Americas. I should mention that some of these places, especially England and the Netherlands, had been taking enslaved people to the Americas for a while, but on a very, very limited basis, like a ship or two a year with a handful of enslaved people on board. But now they had the opportunity to get more involved in the Atlantic slave trade, and they jumped at that opportunity, not only to obtain enslaved people to work their newly acquired American possessions, but to sell enslaved people to other colonizing countries. Just like what originally happened in Portugal, the monarchies of all of these countries tried to consolidate the slave trade into monopolies. That's where we get all these fun company names like the Dutch West India Company, the Company of Adventurers, the Senegal Company, the Royal African Company, and eventually the South Sea Company. While these companies were generally financial failures, they were also some of the very first joint stock companies in existence, meaning a business owned by its investors. If you want to talk about how slavery and the development of modern capitalism are intertwined, this is a good example. Companies where people not directly involved in the Atlantic slave trade could participate in the trade indirectly by investing in one of these companies. FYI, a lot of insurance companies invested money in these monopolies, and in some cases, a lot of money. I should also mention, though, that even with all these attempts at regulation and monopolization of the slave trade, there was always, always, always a lot of smuggling of enslaved people by everybody. This was something that started before the Atlantic slave trade and would continue long after England and the United States banned the Atlantic slave trade in the early 19th century. These monopolies, not surprisingly, were deeply unpopular, as the growing merchant class in Europe was often unable to participate in the Atlantic slave trade other than investing in the joint stock companies. Even though the monopolies were usually financial disasters, the merchant class still saw the opportunity to make money off of enslaving people. Not to mention many of them also owned plantations in the Americas they needed to supply with workers. The English merchant class, in particular, was extremely vocal. The way the English merchant class challenged the slave-trading national monopolies, however, is worth a sidebar. So they argued that the British monopoly was restricting their freedom, that being able to trade in enslaved people was some sort of English right. The government argued back that keeping the trade limited to the Royal African Company, at that time the monopoly in England, also kept independent traders, whom the government portrayed as inhumane, barbarous, and uncivilized, from participating. As if the Royal African Company was the humane option and free trade would lead to inhumanity. The amount of disconnect here, well, it's tremendous. But the English merchants pressed on, and eventually the government conceded in 1698. The resulting explosion in slave trading voyages funded and operated by the English is one of the main reasons why the Atlantic slave trade expanded significantly after the end of the 17th century and also why the English dominated the trade going forward. I should note that this discussion of the Royal African Company being somehow more civil to enslaved people than independent traders would be is actually sort of the first halting discussion of the treatment of enslaved people in England, believe it or not. 
and those arguments would be expanded into the abolitionist movement eventually. I should also note that England didn't exit government participation in the slave trade. The South Sea Company was established in 1711 to pay down the English national debt by way of the slave trade. Several insurance companies also invested significantly in the South Sea Company as well. You're starting to see a theme. By the 18th century, England was the leader in the Atlantic slave trade, transporting about 40% of all enslaved people, which also coincides with the period where the majority of enslaved people were transported by all countries, about 1700 to 1808. Besides England, Portugal had about 32% of the trade, mostly taken to Brazil. France had 17%. America had a surprising 6%. I thought it would be higher. And the Dutch had 3%. In the period between 1662 and 1670, about 83,000 enslaved people were trafficked via the Atlantic slave trade. Just 50 years later, during the period between 1720 and 1729, that number had increased to over 500,000 people, and between 1780 and 1789, it had jumped to almost 800,000 people. Partly this was the desire of the plantation systems in the Caribbean and the Americas to have more and more workers, but the increased demand and supply also reflected the fact that enslaved workers didn't live very long after arriving. The average lifespan was less than 10 years. Overall, just to highlight how awful all of this was, a few numbers. Between the late 15th century and the late 19th century, 12.5 million people were enslaved. 30% of them were probably children under 14. Of those 12.5 million, 1.8 million died on the voyage to the Americas. We don't know how many people may have died in transit from their homes to the coast of West Africa where they were enslaved and put on ships, but academics think it's perhaps another 1.8 million. 1.5 million of the people who survived the journey to the Americas died within the first year of slavery. There were approximately 40,000 ship voyages transporting enslaved people during this time, and 70% of them went to sugar plantations in the Caribbean and in Brazil. Only about 10% of enslaved people went to the American colonies. Marcus Redeker, a historian who wrote a fantastic book called The Slave Ship about the Atlantic slave trade, made these comments. Quote, Another way to look at the loss of life would be to say that an estimated 14 million people were enslaved to produce a yield of 9 million longer surviving enslaved Atlantic workers. Human wastage was simply part of the business, something to be calculated into all planning, unquote. Ugh. So, insurance was very involved in this trade, especially when it came to ensuring the method of transporting enslaved people to the Americas, the slave ships. Marine insurance written by European, British, and eventually American underwriters made the Atlantic slave trade possible. I'll get into that more, a lot more, in a bit, but before I do, I think it's helpful to lay out the general way a voyage from Europe to West Africa to the Americas went. Generally speaking, at least in the beginning, Ships used for transporting enslaved people were not built for that purpose. Eventually, in the 18th century, shipbuilders in England, mostly in Liverpool, began building ships specifically for the trade. 
but even then it was more likely you would have a ship that was converted to carrying a lot of people rather than one that was originally built to carry a lot of people. The whole process would start when a merchant or group of merchants invested in a ship. This was not cheap. The cost of putting a Liverpool ship out to sea by the late 18th century, for example, may have been as high as 12,000 pounds, or about 1.5 million pounds or $1.8 million today. That was a lot of outlay for one person, so most of the time these voyages had a number of investors. Once all the money had been raised and the ship either purchased or contracted, they would then hire a captain for the ship, preferably one who had made the journey previously. Occasionally, you would have a situation where a ship captain also owned the ship, but that was pretty unusual. Ship captains would often be paid an overall fee for the voyage, but also could be incentivized in other ways, like being paid an additional amount based on the number of enslaved people they successfully delivered alive to the Americas. In addition, the ship's captain, and sometimes the surgeon, would be given something called privilege rights or adventurer's rights. Privilege rights meant that the captain could purchase an enslaved person in West Africa with his own money and keep the profits from the sale of that enslaved person. However, he did not have to pay anything to transport or feed the enslaved person on the voyage. That was covered by the ship owners or investors. An adventurer's right meant that the captain was allowed to purchase an enslaved person in West Africa, but the cost of that person, the purchase price, the cost of feeding and carrying that enslaved person to the Americas, was a responsibility of the captain. Again, all the profits from the sale of that enslaved person would go to the captain alone. After a captain was chosen, the captain would hire the crew, usually between 15 or 20 men and sometimes also a surgeon, but not always. Crews that worked on slave ships typically only worked on slave ships. This is partly because working on a slaving ship was seen as the bottom of the barrel for sailors, so these were sailors who probably couldn't work anywhere else. It's also probably because the ship was a floating prison for the majority of its voyage, not a job most sailors wanted to do. Not to mention the mortality rates for crew on slave trading voyages was higher than other kinds of voyages. The merchant would lay out the route for the captain. They would tell them where in Africa to go to purchase enslaved people and then suggest as to where to land when they reached the Americas. Captains had a little more leeway with where to sell the enslaved people on their ships, reflecting market demand, I guess. Merchants also provided other instructions to the captain. How many enslaved people to purchase in West Africa? What types of enslaved people to purchase? and a whole host of other suggestions and requirements. In Liverpool, assuming that was your port of departure, it was for at least 25% of slaving voyages, the ship would be loaded up with goods to trade with slave traders and provisions for the trip to West Africa and beyond. If the ship sailed successfully from Europe to the west coast of Africa, the captain wouldn't pull into an African port. Instead, he would anchor his ship in the waters off the coast and then use a smaller boat, called a longboat, to reach shore whenever it was necessary. There were a lot of reasons for this, but a big one was to prevent enslaved people the captain had purchased from escaping. If the ship was docked, it was a lot easier for enslaved people to try to escape there, close to or attached to land, than if the ship was floating in deeper water. Anchored in deeper water, escapees not only had to be able to swim, but to swim well in ocean conditions and they had to avoid the sharks. 
the odds weren't great for enslaved people to be successful, though that certainly did not stop them from trying. The process for purchasing enslaved people from West Africa traders was not a simple one. This, for some reason, surprised me. I had imagined something similar to what I've read about how enslaved people were sold in the Southern American states, that a buyer would go to a sale of enslaved people, purchase however many enslaved people you intended to purchase, and then leave. But that's not how it worked in West Africa. It often took months of trading to purchase enough people to fill the quota set by their employer. Captain's logs that still exist show enslaved people commonly being purchased one at a time, with days between transactions. Enslaved children under 14 were usually the first to be purchased, and enslaved men were often the last to be purchased. Adults were more expensive than children, and once captains and merchants realized that the longer an enslaved person was on board the ship, the more likely they were to die, they tended to save the most expensive purchases for last. Most ships carried between 150 and 200 enslaved people. You probably have a sense from movies and TV that enslaved people on these ships were forced into close and cramped quarters, which is absolutely true. But I'll add that even given the fact that the ships were set up in this way to carry, say, a certain number of enslaved people, in almost every situation there were more enslaved people on the ship than the ship was supposed to carry. When an enslaved person came on the ship, they were assigned a number that served as their identification in the written records. No one ever bothered to ask or record their real names. One of the challenges of writing and studying the Atlantic slave trade is that it's hard to personalize it fairly. We have a lot of information about one side of the trade, the merchants, sellers, and buyers, and captains, and ship journeys, but very, very little specific information about the other side of the transaction, the names and personal information about the actual human beings forced into servitude. I can tell you what a slave trader's favorite book was, but nearly nothing about the life of an enslaved person on one of those ships. When they were sold, the enslaved people were usually assigned new names, which makes it even more difficult to connect what we can learn about enslaved people on land versus on sea. But anyway, this slow accumulation of enslaved people by the captain had an unfortunate side effect you might not have thought of. You might have an enslaved person trapped on the ship, floating just within eyesight of the African coast, for six or eight months or more before sailing to the Americas. I simply cannot even imagine. After the ship had fulfilled its quota of enslaved people and taken on whatever additional provisions they thought they needed, they would begin the process of sailing to the Americas. The ship had now become a floating prison. It would take 70 or more days to sail to the Americas, but again, some ships were moored off the west coast of Africa for three times that length of time. The voyage was life-threatening for everyone, even if the weather cooperated and there were no mechanical problems. Disease on board was rampant. Dysentery was the most dangerous, but malaria, yellow fever, infectious disease, the infection of wounds, and a myriad of other issues were also deadly. Conditions for the crew were terrible, and for the enslaved people, it was even worse. Though it is unfortunately true that the loss of a crew member cost the captain and merchant investors no money, while the loss of an enslaved person did. Sanitation was non-existent, food was disgusting and often meager, and that was if the voyage went well. If it did not, it was worse. 
Historians estimate that if the captain was lucky, about 20% of the enslaved people on board would die. It was not uncommon for 40% of enslaved people to die before reaching the Americas, and this number does include the number of enslaved people who died while the ship was anchored off the coast of West Africa. Disease wasn't the only reason that enslaved people died. Enslaved people jumped off the ship and drowned, refused to eat or drink, or swallowed seawater to kill themselves. These acts of self-harm were also acts of resistance, a refusal to become property, in some cases used to negotiate better conditions on board, and overall created a culture of resistance among the captives, a community that transcended the many different languages and cultures of those prisoners. And the enslaved people attempted insurrection on board. To be successful at an insurrection, enslaved people needed three things. First, a way to get out of their chains. Women and children were often unchained, but the success of an insurrection depended on participation from all the enslaved on board. Second, they needed to acquire and use some kind of weapon against the crew. And third, they needed to know how to sail the ship if they were successful in taking it over. Unfortunately, most insurrections were unsuccessful, resulting in the death of enslaved people during the insurrection and later through public punishment or execution on board. Some historians have referred to insurrections as acts of collective suicide, but they were also an attempt at freedom. When the ship landed in the Americas after what was typically a 50, 60, or 70-day voyage, the enslaved people would be sold. At that point, the captain might have instructions to purchase certain cargo like sugarcane and bring it back to Liverpool, or simply to sail back empty, or even to take on paying passengers for the trip back to Europe. While there was always a chance a slave trading enterprise could go wrong for the investors, I mean, it always went wrong for the enslaved, of course, more often than not, especially as the demand for enslaved people increased and the number of people transported increased, participants in the industry of transporting enslaved people made money. There is some debate among economists and historians about how much money was made directly from the Atlantic slave trade itself, but, for example, during the period of the War of American Independence from 1776 to 1783, we do know that the European slave trading voyages made a ton of money, mainly because England, who had dominated the slave trade for a long time, was sort of preoccupied. While many merchants made fortunes on slave trading voyages, that wasn't the only thing that made them money. The industries surrounding slavery were also cash cows. Obviously, selling slave-grown sugarcane crops made money, but money was also made processing that cane into sugar. England forbid any sugar processing in the Americas. Instead, they created that industry in English towns like Bristol. And there were industries like shipbuilding, road and bridge building, and even companies providing the products to provision ships. They all made money. Eventually, slave-grown cotton from the Americas would drive English textile production to become a dominant industry in several parts of the country. And of course, the money men who provided credit to all these industries also made money. Bankers and investors. The average rate of profit for people investing in slave trading voyages alone was something like 10%, which is not a bad return for the time, despite how terrible what they were investing in was. However, all these industries relied on successful slave trading voyages to provide enslaved people to the Americas. 
and not all voyages went well. If the voyage went wrong, then things could be catastrophic, not just in terms of the loss of life, but also for the merchants and investors, it could be catastrophic financially. And how do you protect yourself from the financial risk of a failed slave trading voyage? One guess. Insurance. So, how did insurance for slave trading voyages work? And who wrote that insurance? In prior episodes of the podcast, I discussed the concept of bottomry and respondentia, two of the earliest proto-insurance products. Both bottomry and respondentia were still around as the Atlantic slave trade got started in earnest during the 16th century, but an alternative, marine insurance, was also available. Marine insurance provided coverage for the ship and the cargo, but unlike bottomry, there was no loan involved, and the risk was spread more fairly between the insurer and the insured. Marine insurance policies probably started in Italy. Sometime in the late 14th and very early 15th century, though, there is some disagreement on the exact dates. By the 17th century, marine insurance was an accepted, commonly written insurance product available in many European countries, though the market was dominated by Lloyd's of London in England. In terms of the Atlantic slave trade, the purchase of marine insurance was integral to the development of the trade. The market for marine insurance for slave trading voyages probably started small. Before the 17th century, any trading of enslaved people was done either by a monopolistic chartered company owned by the government, like the Royal African Company, or it was through small-scale smuggling of enslaved people. It's very unlikely that the national monopolies were buying insurance, and there's no indication that they did, because financially, they didn't need to buy insurance to reduce their financial risk. Probably they should have, since most of the monopolies were total financial failures, but... And human smugglers didn't buy insurance because they were, you know, smuggling. As the national monopolies loosened or disbanded, and the legal transport of enslaved people was opened up to more interested independent parties, marine insurance for slave trading voyages became more common. Of course, there was still a lot of smuggling going on. And again, those people didn't buy insurance. Lloyds of London wrote the majority of all marine insurance in Europe and England during this period, which included insurance for slave trading voyages. In the 1770s, at least 10% of Lloyd's names were involved in underwriting marine insurance for slave-trading voyages. If you remember from prior podcast episodes, Lloyd's underwriters at this time were mostly individual merchants underwriting other merchants' voyages. Not surprisingly, these merchants who were also underwriting were sometimes involved in the slave trade themselves, either as investors, plantation owners, or slave traders. If you didn't want to go to Lloyd's for your insurance, you could also approach independent underwriters, who were usually also merchants, in English port cities with deep ties to the Atlantic slave trade, specifically in Liverpool or Bristol. There were also a handful of actual insurance companies in England who were writing marine policies for slave trading voyages. They were the London Assurance and the Royal Exchange Assurance. These two companies were the very first chartered insurance companies established by an Act of Parliament in 1720. This meant they were the only incorporated entities that could write marine insurance in England, and your only other alternative 
was to approach individual underwriters at Lloyd's and in places like Bristol and Liverpool. The Sun Fire Office, which was the largest independent incorporated insurance company at the time, was unaffected because it didn't write marine insurance at all. For the honor of this charter, those two companies gave King George a gift of £600,000, equivalent to almost £70 million today, or $84 million. Not a bribe. Definitely not a bribe. Totally a bribe. If you were a slave trader located outside England, you more often than not still placed your insurance with an underwriter in England. For example, the majority of marine insurance written in the American colonies was written through England, though that would change some after the American Revolution. Lloyd's underwriters in England appointed people, called brokers, in the American colonies, and merchants visited these local brokers and arranged insurance through Lloyd's. There were some colonial Americans writing insurance independently of Lloyd's, though there weren't many incorporated insurance companies there until after the American Revolution. After 1776, however, incorporated American insurance companies started to pop up in places like Boston, Newport, New York, Philadelphia, Charleston, and Providence, Rhode Island, and a lot of these companies wrote marine insurance for slave trading voyages. If you were on the European continent, you probably still would go to Lloyd's for your marine insurance, but you also had other more local options. Nantes, Bordeaux, and Marseille in France, Amsterdam, Rotterdam, and Middleburg in Holland, even Hamburg, Barcelona, or Cadiz. And I apologize for my pronunciations. Wherever you bought your insurance, the process was often similar. The merchant who owned the ship or a representative of a group of investors in the ship would approach an intermediary, a.k.a. the broker. This broker would approach various underwriters or insurance companies and negotiate the marine insurance for the potential insured. Most of the time, and especially at Lloyd's, a marine insurance policy had multiple underwriters participating and therefore spreading the risk out, called subscribers. Why did Lloyd's dominate the marine insurance business? It was partly reputation, even back then, Lloyd's was very aware of the importance of goodwill. Also, the Lloyd's policy form was a little broader, providing more insurance coverage than other alternatives. But most importantly, Lloyd's offered insurance brokers and, by association, people buying insurance, something that these other underwriters and insurance companies did not. Time. It was common for Lloyd's underwriters to offer brokers between 12 months and 36 months of credit before the premium for a particular insured was due. Sometimes this meant that the broker would accept a letter of credit from the insured, rather than cash, for some shorter period, which was good for the insured. At some point, the broker would collect the premium from the insured, but then they wouldn't have to send that money to the underwriter right away. This served a couple of purposes. First, it was great for the broker, who could then make money off of investing these funds, in addition to whatever commission they received. Second, in the case of an underwriter's financial insolvency, meaning they no longer had money to pay out claims, this served as a bit of a backstop for the insured. The broker could use the money they received as a premium for the policy and hadn't yet sent to the underwriter to pay at least part of the claim. 
underwriters usually charged a premium of 10 or 20 percent of the ship's total value for the voyage, but that could go higher than 50 percent, particularly during wartime. And there were a lot of wars. In terms of insuring enslaved people, some policies show the premium for that exposure was based on a per-person charge, but more typically, the value of the enslaved person was simply lumped in with the overall value of the cargo to develop a premium. As you can see, enslaved people were sometimes valued as individuals in this process, but sometimes they weren't. It's a pretty glaring contradiction. One thing that's interesting about this, if you listen to my episode on the Gambling Act, is that marine insurance written out of Europe for slave trading voyages had one enormous hurdle to overcome that Lloyd's did not. Life insurance was outlawed in almost all European countries. You might think, what does that have to do with marine insurance on slave trading voyages? Since the cargo on these slave trading voyages was primarily human beings, how do you insure the life of a human being? Life insurance. As I mentioned before, marine insurance started sometime in the 15th century, and so did the small-scale transportation of enslaved people. In Europe at that time, marine insurance provided very broad coverage regarding enslaved people, and that coverage was pretty much indistinguishable from life insurance. Life insurance purchased by free individuals was also becoming more popular in Europe at the time, though there were disturbing stories about how people were using it to bet on the lives of people they didn't know, royal figures, and even the Pope. As a result of this bad behavior, almost all of Europe banned life insurance by the end of the 15th century, saying that it was heretical. Remember, we're still in a period where events, like someone's death, are unknowable, unpredictable, and entirely decided by God. Opponents also believed that life insurance policies would naturally result in murder, conspiracy, and gambling, and they weren't wrong on at least one of these. However, there was one important exception to this life insurance ban in Europe, and that was for something called ransom insurance. Insurance to cover a person if they were captured and then ransomed, or captured and then sold into slavery while on a sailing voyage. This ransom insurance was still legal, and it was commonly written in France and the Netherlands. The French policy for ransom insurance was particularly broad, as it would pay a ransom, or the amount needed to buy that person out of captivity, but it also covered the person if they were, quote, retaken, killed, or drowned, or if they died otherwise than by a natural death, unquote, while traveling back to their home. That's pretty close to life insurance, even if it's only for someone while they're on a ship. What's interesting to consider is that this extension in the French policy implies that there is a difference between the value of a person on land, where life insurance is banned and therefore the person's life is not insurable, versus the value of a person while at sea, in which ransom coverage is available and the ransomed or formerly enslaved person's life is insurable while on the trip back to their home. So when the Europeans started trying to insure slave trading voyages, they looked to this ransom insurance to try and provide some kind of life insurance coverage for the enslaved people they were carrying. And they did it in a way that is all kinds of insane. This was where my brain kind of shut down, and I had to take a long walk. Because what this whole ransom exception says is that the enslaved people weren't considered to be cargo for European insurers, 
they were considered to be people. In that scenario, who were the kidnappers? The slave traders. Who paid the ransom? The slave buyers. The enslaved people, to be clear, were considered hostages with respect to European marine insurance. And yet no one ever seemed to make the connection that maybe the problem wasn't life insurance. It was slave trading. For the English, it was simpler. Life insurance was never banned there, so there was no reason for the mental gymnastics the Europeans went through to insure enslaved people while in transit to the Americas. The Gambling Act of 1774 in England put the brakes on the rampant misuse of life insurance policies there, but the concept of enslaved people as cargo for insurance purposes was easily accepted by English underwriters and, by extension, colonial American underwriters. One of the very interesting things about this more recent research into the Atlantic slave trade and insurance is that we have quite a clear understanding of how these policies were underwritten based on various documents and the guidelines in underwriting manuals. This makes for a heartbreaking, but still important, analysis. How did you underwrite these voyages, and what kind of policy wording was used? It's a grim topic, but most underwriters listening to this show were probably wondering this, I'm sure. From a data science perspective, which we love these days in insurance, Marine underwriters didn't have a lot, actuarially speaking, to use to make decisions on risk selection, pricing, or loss potential. And of course, as you know from listening to prior episodes, marine voyages were particularly scary for underwriters. As soon as the ship left port, you really had no idea where it was or what was happening. And since this was before the invention of the telegraph, There was no way you could find out promptly if it had been successful in getting to any of its destinations in one piece. There were a couple of obvious things an underwriter could review if considering an application for marine insurance for a slave trading ship. The ship itself was one. How old was it? How many voyages of any kind had it done? What condition was it in? Were certain kinds of ships better than others? I said before that most slave trading voyages were done with ships that were not specifically built for transporting enslaved people. Were those ships better or worse than the ships eventually built in Liverpool specifically for the trade? I don't know the answer to this, but the fact that overwhelmingly these ships were overcrowded on purpose suggests to me that maybe the ship that was not specifically built for the trade might actually be better. Other questions might include information about how the ship could protect itself. Did it have guns and cannons, and if so, how many and what kind? Often the underwriter would never see the ship before they decided whether to insure it. Well, in probably 90% of cases, they did not see the vessel. So they had to rely on their knowledge and the information provided by the merchant or the broker. That's probably not much different from marine insurance today, though one assumes that the guns are not a preferred item. After that, you had to consider some particulars about where these vessels were going and what they were doing when they got there. One of the biggest concerns about insuring ocean-bound vessels was something called sea worms or wood worms. Don't look it up. These worms bored holes in the hull, the bottom of the ship, and caused serious issues. They were more of an issue when ships were anchored in warmer water, 
like the water off the coast of Africa or the water off the coast of the Caribbean Americas, slave trading vessels often sat for months anchored off the coast of West Africa while they traded for enslaved Africans. So if you were reviewing a submission for insurance for an ocean-going vessel that was heading out to Africa or the Americas, you'd want to find a ship that was sheathed with a copper hull, meaning that the bottom of the boat was covered with copper. The copper prevented worms from boring into your ship. This was often written into the policy as a warranty, meaning that it was a requirement that the insured had to follow. Another thing an underwriter would consider was the route of the voyage itself. In terms of leaving England, it probably didn't much matter whether you left from Bristol or Liverpool or some other coastal town, but the route you planned to travel to West Africa and where you planned to anchor your ship in West Africa to trade mattered a lot. Not only were some routes more dangerous and also some ports, but piracy was a major concern along all parts of the route. And there were so many types of pirates. From the southern European coast to West Africa, you had to worry about Barbary pirates, Turkish pirates, Moorish pirates, and corsairs, not to mention independent pirates just looking for trouble. Once your ship left Africa and sailed for the Americas, again, your route to the Americas became a big concern, but amazingly, captains were given great leeway by insurance underwriters as to their final port destination in the Americas. This is partly because underwriters recognized that the captains were going to want to find the market that was most favorable at that moment in time. Some routes were more problematic than others in terms of weather and sea conditions. The underwriter expected that the route would be planned out and documented before sailing from England and that the captain would stick to that route unless some major catastrophe caused them to reroute. Some routes were just too dangerous, either because of wind, ocean conditions, or, again, pirates, like your Blackbeard or Anne Bonny types in the Caribbean and the coast of South America. It's no coincidence that the golden age of piracy lines up pretty closely with the most active periods of the Atlantic slave trade. While some pirates were independent actors, a lot of pirates were just other countries with a vendetta. Sometimes they were officially sanctioned privateers, permitted by the government to attack and overtake merchant ships flying another nation's flag. As a result, one of the things you had to understand as an underwriter was the state of geopolitics in the region. During the 400 years the Atlantic slave trade was going on, everybody in Europe was at war with everybody else at some point. Between 1688 and 1807, England was involved in no less than seven major wars. So, for example, if England and France were at war, it was pretty common for the governments of those countries to allow private individuals to capture and take ships, including merchant ships, that flew the other country's flag. It was a given that military vessels could do the same. So if you were an English ship transporting enslaved people and, say, you're in sight of your destination in the Americas, and a French ship came upon you, they might just board your ship and take everything you have, including the ship. Occasionally, even slave trading ships got into the act and boarded and overtook other ships from warring countries. This was something that could happen on all parts of the route, even the trip from England to West Africa and while the ship was stationary off the coast of West Africa. Remember how most of the time the ships used by slave traders weren't specifically built for slave trading? 
depending on the period, between 15 to 45 percent of the ships used in the English slave trade were originally foreign vessels captured by the British Navy or British privateers and repurposed for slave trading. And, of course, just operating during an active war could be problematic even without privateers. Maybe your route took you straight through an area where active naval warfare was happening, or you ran into a blockade you couldn't get around, or you had to reroute your ship to a more dangerous weather path to avoid all of those things. Insuring a slave trading vessel during wartime got expensive, and rates could increase by 50% or more if they could find insurance at all. How long the ship expected to stay anchored off the coast of West Africa also figured into the underwriting process. First, this period of anchorage, both the non-movement and the location of said anchorage, was mostly where these woodworms damaged the ship, so the longer you stayed there, if you didn't have a copper hull, the more chances you would have major issues. There were other reasons your ship might be damaged off the coast of Africa. Again, pirates were a concern too, and the underwriters were right to be concerned. Based on historical research, in a period of 60 years, about 188 vessels were wrecked at sea somewhere off the coastal waters of Africa. Unfortunately, it's not clear specifically what caused those wrecks, but we can expect, based on what underwriting guidelines we've seen, that woodworms and pirates were major factors. In addition, if the vessel remained in Africa longer than expected, because the captain took too long to obtain the number of enslaved people their merchant employers wanted them to carry, then you might end up running into hurricane season in the Atlantic, and that would be a huge problem. You won't be surprised to know that underwriters back then were not particularly interested in ensuring voyages that ran into hurricane season, planned or unplanned. Estimating hurricanes was not something that could be done in real time like it is today. And frankly, the longer you stayed off the coast of West Africa, the worse your ship's overall mortality was, not just for enslaved people, but also for the crew. Less crew meant more hazards might be missed along the voyage, or more mistakes might be made. And then once you finally reached your destination in the Americas and sold the enslaved people into further bondage, underwriters wanted to know what the next step was for that sailing ship. What did you expect you would need to do to make your ship ready to go back to England? Would you take on cargo, which meant further risk for the underwriters, or sail back empty, or with paying passengers only? Some of the things that underwriters had to think about weren't as easily measurable, but were just as important. It often came down to the reputation of all involved to determine if the underwriter would ensure a particular voyage. For example, they would look at the competence of the captain. How many voyages had the captain sailed? How many specifically slave-trading voyages had the captain sailed? Because that was a very different type of situation than just taking cloth and gin from point A to point B. How many transatlantic voyages had the captain done? How trustworthy was the captain and how savvy? Sometimes savvy was a bad thing. Sometimes during wartime, Governments would provide escorts to merchant vessels to protect them, but the downside of that was that everyone arrived at their location at about the same time. If you left the convoy and were first to reach the market, you might get higher prices than those who stayed with the convoy, and that was a heck of an inducement to do so. Based on the reputation of the captain and the people who owned the ship or who were investing in the voyage, 
an underwriter had to determine how likely this was to happen for any particular sailing. Most of this reputational information came via letters of recommendation from other people, and if you were lucky, they were from other people the underwriters already knew and trusted. There probably wasn't a lot you could do about underwriting the reputation of the crew, which usually changed every voyage, and even during parts of voyages. As I said, the crews that served on slaving ships were not great, so the quality of the crew was pretty much out. But you could consider the quantity of the crew. Underwriters would want to know that there were enough crew to manage the tasks of the voyage, and the number of sailors you needed to manage enslaved people was a lot more than you needed to manage a ship carrying nothing or carrying something like sugarcane, because honestly, a slave trading ship was a floating prison. The average crew size for a ship carrying approximately 200 enslaved people was somewhere between 15 and 20. And if you think that maybe this wasn't enough crew and that the enslaved people would make the most of their larger numbers if they could, you would be right in a lot of cases. If the underwriter was satisfied with the condition of the ship, the planned route, and the people manning that ship, then they had to turn their underwriting to the cargo. And in the case of slaving ships, the cargo was the enslaved people on the ship. How many enslaved people was the voyage planning to take? Frankly, this was probably the only real question they asked about the enslaved people and their conditions on board, and it was often wrong. Conditions on slave ships were always terrible for enslaved people, and the underwriters didn't care about humane conditions any more than the captain or the merchants did. In many cases, a lot of cases, the number of enslaved people was understated to the underwriters. Ships that could carry X amount of enslaved people would usually carry more than that, sometimes significantly so. It was money, pure and simple. And this was something that surprised me, that there was nothing in the policy to account for this regular overcrowding and underestimating of the number of enslaved people on ships, but I found no evidence that that was ever the case. Once you'd done your underwriting on all of this, the underwriters needed to decide what they were willing or not willing to cover. Luckily for the underwriter, by the time of the Atlantic slave trade, marine insurance wording had already become mostly standardized in the Western world, with Lloyd's wording being the dominant wording for marine risks. If you aren't from the insurance industry, when I tell you that the standard marine insurance policy wording is a bit confusing, believe me. I mean, even back then, they understood that the policy contract was confusing. Historians of Lloyd's, two men named Charles Wright and C. Ernest Fail, explained it this way, quote, Short as it is, this form contains a good deal of tautology, blanks that no one ever dreams of filling up, clauses superfluous to most insurances that no one troubles to strike out. It leaves many of the contingencies of modern commerce wholly unprovided for, yet purports to give assurance against risks that are now uninsurable or the subject of special contracts. These defects and omissions are made good by additional clauses, written, stamped, or gummed on the policy, which explain, amplify, and frequently contradict the terms of the policy itself. These additional clauses are often printed and gummed on in batches, 
including many that are entirely irrelevant to the particular transaction in question, unquote. They also went on to comment that the form looked like, quote, the work of a lunatic endowed with a private sense of humor, unquote. See, the jokes, they just never get any better. But back to the actual policy wording. I'm skipping the first page of the policy and going straight to the section that addresses the types of losses covered by the Lloyd's Marine Insurance Policy. I'm going to read this to you, and I'm going to do it very slowly. I do not expect you to get it, but I think it's useful all the same, even just as entertainment. Touching the adventures and perils which we, the assurers, are contented to bear and do take upon us in this voyage, they are of the seas, men of war, fire, enemies, pirates, rovers, thieves, jettisons, letters of mart and countermart, surprisals, takings at sea, arrests, restraints and detainments of all kings, princes, and people, of what nation, condition, or quality soever, barratry of the master and mariners, and of all other perils, losses, and misfortunes that have or shall come to the hurt, detriment, or damage of the said goods and merchandises and ship, etc., or any part thereof. Yeah, that's confusing. By the way, if you are curious about what differed between this wording from Lloyd's and the wording in Europe, it was usually the, quote, all other perils, losses, or misfortunes, unquote, part at the end. The European wording usually didn't have that, and it does broaden the coverage some for people who bought Lloyd's insurance policies. But for anyone listening who has worked on marine insurance for hull or cargo exposures, I'm guessing some of this sounds kind of familiar. And that's because this wording, almost exactly as I have read it to you, was still in use until 1978. And even now, a lot of the wording remains the same. But I want to break the wording down for you because it is confusing. The first line has some extra fancy clauses in it, but basically it says that this policy covers perils of the sea. Perils of the sea isn't a defined term, but generally refers to any loss that cannot be prevented by any reasonable care, skill, and diligence of the people on the ship. So damage from things like storms, hurricanes, or cyclones, keeping in mind that they had to be a surprise. Nobody was trying to cover a ship sailing directly into hurricane season. These perils are further explained in the next two lines as the following. Men of war. So this refers to a vessel authorized or maintained by the government of a country for the purpose of defense or attack, and the loss arising out of a collision with one of these vessels. So basically, if you're attacked by another country's naval ship, or it runs into you, or you run into it, that would be covered. Fire. This is self-explanatory. Fire on board a ship is always a bad thing. Enemies. Well, this usually means all damage related to the hostile acts of an enemy. Enemy is not defined but generally has to be related to an enemy campaign, so again, related to damage from war. Pirates, rovers, and thieves. So these are pretty self-explanatory, but interestingly, the thieves part does not actually refer to any theft by anyone on the vessel, like the captain or crew. Jettison. 
This is the voluntary and intentional throwing overboard some or all of the cargo or part of the vessel's equipment to lighten the ship in case of an emergency. Hang on to this definition. You're going to need it in future episodes. Letters of Mart and Countermart. So a letter of Mart is a power granted by a government to individual citizens who are permitted to attack an enemy's merchant ships, those privateers I mentioned earlier. The letter of Countermart is permission by the opposing nation to resist and retaliate against such attacks. So again, this is sort of related to war, but could also probably include damage done accidentally by another ship that was trying to defend your ship from a privateer. Surprisals, a surprise attack, or an ambush. The implication is that if it's not a surprise, it's not covered here. Like, you knew about it and you probably should have moved your ship out of harm's way, but you didn't. Maybe. But then, again, if it's war-related, it might be covered by the man of war or by enemies. Takings at sea. So this refers to someone taking your ship into port so that they can examine it and make sure you're not carrying contraband goods. I should also note that carrying contraband goods was usually excluded from these insurance policies in another section. Arrests. This doesn't mean if you get arrested. It means if someone has taken your ship from you, but only if it's a political act. Restraints and detainments of all kings, princes, and people of what nation, condition of quality, soever. This is totally not what you think it is. Restraints refer to a situation where you are not allowed to enter a particular port by the government of that country. The detainment part refers to the detention of a vessel and its cargo by blockage or quarantine by another nation while your vessel is in port. Baritry of the master and mariners. This refers to a wrongful act or negligence regarding the ship or cargo and includes fraud and crime by the captain or crew. The offense has to be committed without the knowledge of the owner, typically a merchant. For example, if the captain took a ship's cargo, sold it, and then pocketed the proceeds for themselves, and then set the ship on fire to disguise their theft, that would be considered baritry and covered by this section. And finally, all other perils, losses, and misfortunes that have or shall come to the hurt, detriment, or damage of the said good and merchandise and ship, etc., or any part thereof. This could include damage from the ship running aground or hitting a rock or some other natural obstacle. If the cargo was damaged because of, quote, perils of like nature, so, for example, not fire, but damaged by smoke, not damaged by water, but by ice formed by seawater, it would likely be covered here. I know, it is a lot of terminology. There's no test. But there are a few other important terms in marine insurance you should be familiar with, so just stick with me. I promise it won't be too painful, and it's helpful. There are still things we use today. Another important term mentioned later in this policy is something called general average. This seems like such a generic term, right? What the heck is a general average? First, the word average here has a different meaning than we typically give it today. Average, in this case, means loss. So general average means general loss. There are actually a lot of terms in insurance that use the word average, but two that are good to remember in this discussion are particular average 
and general average. And I think the definition of these phrases is actually backward, but what do I know? Particular average refers to the amount of loss that the insurer has to pay the client. So in that case, the total cost of a loss is paid by the insurance company or individual underwriter. The insured is not responsible for any amount. The general average refers to the amount of loss that was shared among everyone invested in the voyage, not just the underwriter. You can see why I think these are sort of backward. General average losses are special. As one writer put it in the mid-19th century, quote, the sacrifice must have been made under the urgent pressure of some real and immediately impending danger and must have been resorted to as the sole means of escaping destruction, unquote. So if you had to cut down a mast to save the ship from capsizing during a storm, or if you had to throw cargo over the side of the ship called jettisoning because the ship was sinking and the weight of the cargo was making it inevitable that the ship and people on the ship would be lost, those would be general average losses. In practice, this usually meant that all the underwriters on the risk would share proportionally in the losses. Sometimes it also meant that the insured would also share in the loss. Okay, terminology complete. You made it. Congrats. So now we know what was typically covered, but what was typically excluded? That depended. For the ship itself, as I mentioned before, a major concern was woodworms, which could seriously damage the vessel. The best way to prevent this damage was by covering your hull with a light layer of copper. A majority of policies required that the hull be covered in copper and would exclude any hull damage if this was not the case. Underwriters also usually limited coverage to the ship itself and not to any other related vessels. So, for example, when these slave trading ships were moored off the coast of West Africa, longboats were used to get people from the shore to the ship and back again. This included enslaved people that the captain had purchased while on land. Underwriters didn't want to cover anything while people were in these longboats, so, quote, trading in boats, unquote, was typically excluded. Why? Because any kidnapped person in a longboat headed to the slaving ship with the coast of Africa within sight behind them was probably going to make an escape attempt, or a suicide attempt, or a murder attempt, or all of the above. They were going to try to get out of that boat at any point that they could try to do so, and that created a risk of loss that underwriters weren't willing to take on. The underwriter also had to consider whether or not to extend coverage to cover damage to the ship if the voyage was longer than expected, and under what circumstances. Did they want to cover it only if there were poor winds? What about the miscalculation of their destination? This miscalculation is going to come up again as a really important issue in another episode, and I get the impression that underwriters weren't generally too keen on insuring it. What if the ship was participating in a trade that was prohibited, either in the locations they traded at or the types of things they were selling or buying? This became more of an issue as some nations outlawed or limited slavery and the slave trade. Even going to, or going past, countries with fledgling abolition movements might be considered too challenging to insure, and you might exclude anything related to those countries. Other than the ship itself, underwriters had to consider whether or not to cover the various cargo carried by the ships and under what terms and conditions. Slaving vessels took cargo to the coast of West Africa to trade, 
for enslaved people. They may have also taken on cargo to bring back to England after they left the West Indies. For this cargo, there were a host of concerns. Some products tended to rot or leak, or they had a limited shelf life. You might exclude loss related to some of these products, but primarily. When we talk about cargo, we are talking about enslaved people, confined to these ships and their eventual sale in the West Indies. For the human cargo, there were a lot of concerns, and what is ironic and also deeply depressing is that almost all of these concerns about loss involved the health, welfare, and frankly, independent agency of these enslaved people. Enslaved people could die on the ship for a whole host of reasons, including things listed on the policy as covered. They could drown during a storm, be killed during a shipwreck, or even during an attack by pirates or a foreign vessel. Sometimes you might see the deaths of enslaved people covered as a, quote, danger incident to navigation, unquote, or, quote, peril of the sea, unquote, but not always. But those weren't the only things that could result in an enslaved person's death, and underwriters had to decide what kinds of deaths would be covered and what kinds of deaths would be excluded, generally. Underwriters only wanted to cover the death of enslaved people under certain circumstances. And how did they decide what was and was not covered in this regard? Well, first they looked to the existing exclusions regarding other cargo, like grain, or wine. So, for example, those types of cargo were typically not covered for spoilage that was expected. So, for example, if you knew that grain carried on your ship would get moldy after 100 days and then you decided to take a detour that you knew would make the route 120 days, well, that spoilage would be expected and not covered. But how do you apply this to people? Historian Tim Armstrong described it this way, quote, the implication is that it is not the human life of a slave that is insured, but rather his or her status as goods in transit. And as in insurance generally, what cannot be insured in goods is their internal constitution, their inherent weakness, unquote. So marine insurance underwriters decided that anything defined by the policy under two terms, one, natural death, and or two, common mortality, should typically be excluded. These terms encompassed reasons for death that included disease, suicide, lack of water, poor nutrition, beatings and torture by the captain and crew, and even something called malaise. Accidents that were unrelated to a peril of the sea were also typically considered natural deaths and therefore excluded from coverage. But the enslaved people were people, of course, and they wanted freedom, and as a result, it was not uncommon for enslaved people to rise and try to commandeer the ship during the voyage. Anita Ruprecht, a historian who's done a lot of work on insurance and slavery, put it better than I could. She said, quote, That element is the excessive passion that escapes calculation. Simply put, it is rage. Africans always refused the imposition of commodity status. They struggled, rebelled, mounted insurrections, mutinied, took over ships, and embraced the outlandish freedoms of piracy, unquote. Historians estimate that perhaps 10% of all voyages had an insurrection attempt, 
While most marine insurance policies covering slave trading voyages initially excluded losses incurred during an insurrection, as time went on and merchants better understood the possibility of insurrection and their potential loss of enslaved human cargo as a result, merchants began to demand that insurance cover at least some types of insurrection-related losses. Insurrection terrified slave traders and slave merchants more than diseases or perils of the sea. While insurrection wasn't always specifically excluded on policies, it often wasn't specifically included. It wasn't considered a peril of the seas or anything else on that coverage list I just went through, for example. Under pressure, underwriters eventually decided they could consider covering some things related to insurrection, but they wanted to minimize the loss potential. French policies generally covered insurrection already, so there was no need to change their policies, but starting in the early 1780s in England, policy wording started to appear with specific insurrection loss coverage. By the end of that decade, though, the wording in England had started to tighten, as we say in underwriting, meaning it became more limited in scope, and underwriters added a threshold. They indicated that the insurance would only kick in for losses related to insurrection if more than a certain percentage, usually 5 or 10 percent, of the enslaved people were killed during that insurrection. As Anita Ruprecht commented, quote, insuring against rage was no longer such a worthwhile gamble, unquote. Some underwriters continued to provide broader, meaning less restricted coverage, but only on a general average basis. Remember general average? That means that the losses arising out of an insurrection would be shared by everyone underwriting the voyage and often the merchants as well. The way they justified this was by arguing that enslaved people killed as part of an insurrection attempt were, quote, cargo destroyed to preserve the ship, unquote, which was one of the situations when the general average was already applied by the policy. And again, hold on to this idea. It's going to come up in another episode and it's going to be really important. Sometimes they added the caveat that if the insurrection was a result of the captain or the crew's negligence, that would also be excluded. You might think to yourself that one of the issues the underwriters were wrestling with here is whether or not those enslaved people were people and had agency or whether they were cargo and therefore did not. I think that's probably a little bit true, especially since this period of the 1780s when they were wrestling with this wording is also the period in England when the abolition effort really started. But you also have to remember that there were only a handful of real insurance companies at this time, and that most of the insurance was being written by people who were also merchants or investors. And many of these merchants or investors financed slave trading voyages for their financial benefit, or they owned plantations or operations in the West Indies. They weren't exactly neutral when it came to slavery. If an underwriter was lucky, the voyage went off without a hitch and there were no losses to consider. But when there were losses, things could get complicated, especially in England, because English common law wasn't quite applicable to most of these claims, and a lot of this wording hadn't yet been tested in the courts. While most of the original insurance policies for slave trading voyages have been lost to time. By looking at court cases that appeared during this period, we can learn a lot about how things worked, especially in England and the U.S., 
In my next two episodes, I will be talking about some specific court cases in great detail, but I want to leave you with one case in particular to bring together everything that I've discussed today. The English courts heard a case in 1785 called Jones v. Schmoll. This involved a British slave trading ship where the enslaved people started an insurrection. Unfortunately, they did not succeed, and as a result, several enslaved people were killed during that insurrection. The owners of the slave ship wanted to recover the value of the enslaved people who were killed from the insurance company, including the enslaved people who were killed after the insurrection was put down. The owners also wanted payment for the loss of market value of the remaining enslaved people because they were now known to be rebellious and therefore were worth less at market. The policy itself had insurrection coverage with that threshold in place. The losses had to be above 10% to be considered. If you remember the Gambling Act episode, you may remember the Chief Justice of the Court of King's Bench, one William Murray, Lord Mansfield. He also oversaw this case, which was decided by a jury. The jury determined that the enslaved people who died because they were wounded or bruised, and by bruised, I'm assuming we're talking about like a deadly head concussion or related, those people were covered by the insurance policy. But those enslaved people who had, quote, swallowed seawater and died in consequence thereof, or who leaped into the sea and hung upon the sides of the ship without being otherwise bruised, or who died of chagrin were not to be paid for, unquote. In addition, Mansfield weighed in on the question of market devaluation, this demand from the insured parties that the decrease in the value of the remaining enslaved people should also be covered by the insurance policy, Mansfield denied this request, as well he should. The insured parties were really stretching here. Mansfield's going to pop up a lot in the next episode, and he's super important to the history of insurance in general, and not just the history of slavery and insurance. And we'll say this about him. He's generally known to have been very pro-commerce, and he certainly wasn't an active abolitionist. I mean, we have no idea how he felt about slavery at all, frankly. But I do think he deserves a lot of credit for being generally fair in insurance disputes and often a little progressive. And he could admit when he was wrong, which is a good personality trait, especially for the highest ranking judge in England at the time. On the insurance versus history front, I think here everyone loses. On the one hand, I am aware that you can't judge people's behavior in other periods of history without taking into account that their mindset was likely different than our own, but with respect to the forced enslavement of 12 million people, I don't think we can let those historical wrongdoers pretend that they didn't know they were doing something wrong. The mindset of the time might be different than ours today, but there were plenty of indications during this time that the blind eye turned to the horror of slavery wasn't only some misunderstanding about who was able to be seen as a human and who was not. The majority of people in England and Europe not directly involved in the slave trade were able to turn a blind eye because it was something that happened in the Americas and West Africa, and so they didn't have to confront the slave trade directly. And honestly, it was all about money. And if the money is good enough, some people can ignore all types of horrible things. There's been a lot written about 
capitalism and slavery and how the two things are intertwined. And if it interests you, I have suggested a few books in my show notes, but I do want to make a few comments about it in conclusion. First, the slave trade was based on credit at all levels. Investors gave merchants money for the voyages, and then merchants passed the risk to underwriters. When the enslaved person was purchased at the final destination, it was usually with a letter of credit. All this credit results in a system where it was easy to ignore that this was a human being who was being bought and sold. The further away from the original transaction, the more abstract it became. And that was when the enslaved person was still alive. Even dead, they were worth money via an insurance claim. Insurance and this related credit system that was an integral part of the marine insurance market and the slave trading market supported the development of banking systems at a time when organized corporate banking was still in its infancy. The normalization of inter-ocean trading lines, the banking industry, and the businesses that developed to support slavery or to process the products that slavery created were essential in helping Europe, but especially England, build colonial empires. While some people would like to ignore that the system of economic success we have today, namely capitalism, was also a big reason that slavery existed and a big reason why it thrived, I think it's important to look at that fact straight on. I know this has probably been a depressing episode, but there is some brightness and hopefulness on the horizon. Today, Lloyd's has made great strides in opening their archives to historians and taking responsibility for their role in the Atlantic slave trade, though they probably could go further. I will tell you that if you look at some of the older books written about Lloyd's, and on my bookshelf is one of the more important ones, a book called A History of Lloyd's, written by Charles Wright and C. Ernest Fale in 1928, there is nothing at all about slavery in that book. It's like it never even existed. And mind you, this is an enormous book. There was room. The official book about the Royal Exchange Assurance, written in 1970, same, nothing. Some U.S. states passed laws in the first years of this millennium requiring insurance companies to provide information about their historical involvement in the Atlantic slave trade. Royal and Sun Alliance, which was founded in part by the old London Assurance, was required by a 2002 California law to provide information on any slave-related policies they may have written. AXA, which owns part of what was left of Royal Exchange Assurance, apologized a few years ago for their involvement in the slave trade, but they don't appear to have opened their archives. But those organizations that have opened their archives have already helped historians better understand the Atlantic slave trade and, as Anita Ruprecht says, the, quote, archive of marine insurance offers an unexpected route into the history of resistance to slavery, unquote. That's because one thing we've learned in particular from these archives was that while enslaved insurrections on board ships may not have gone the way the enslaved people on those ships might have wanted, the threat of insurrection did make slave trading voyages more dangerous and more expensive. In addition, the fear of insurrection decreased the demand for enslaved people significantly. Historians now estimate that it probably reduced the slave trade by at least 600,000 enslaved people. I mean, that is a drop in the bucket of the more than 12 million people who were transported, but it is something. 
There certainly is more to do in terms of recognizing the role of insurance in the Atlantic slave trade, but the historical research done in the last 20 years is an amazing start. Jones v. Schmall isn't the only dispute regarding the status and rights of enslaved people in England, and it isn't even the only insurance dispute regarding the rights and status of enslaved people. Cases in the English courts about insurance claims related to slavery would become the catalyst for the English abolitionist movement, which successfully lobbied to end the slave trade and eventually slavery itself. In my next episode on slavery, I'll delve deeper into England's specific role in the slave trade and how insurance disputes in the English courts provided a platform for abolitionists to change the minds and hearts of English citizens. Thanks for listening. Show notes, a list of sources, and additional reading suggestions can be found on my website, which is linked in the show description on your podcast player. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe to the show on your preferred platform to be notified of new episodes as soon as they drop. And let other people know about the podcast by spreading the word. My social media is linked in the show description in your podcast player as well, so give me a shout. And remember, be safe, be smart, and read your policy wording. Thank you.